0: Welcome, everyone, to Square One, a podcast series run by the Harvard Association for Law and Business. My name is Ramin Sheth, and I'm a current member of the advisory board for the Harvard Association for Law and Business, one of the largest student-run organizations at Harvard Law School. Today, we're excited to be joined by David Golden, managing partner at Revolution Ventures. David, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Ramin. It's a pleasure to be here. So David, maybe it'd be helpful to take a step back and talk a little bit about how you got into venture capital. You know, you had an interesting uh, professional journey before you ended up in VC. You went to HLS, you practiced law at Davis Polk in New York, Uh, you eventually served as vice chairman and head of global investment banking at JP Morgan, and then you transitioned to VC. So talk a little bit more about your journey, the different types of roles you held, and what you got out of them, and then why you transitioned from Wall Street to Silicon Valley. Sure. It's, uh, it was a somewhat serendipitous journey in that I didn't have a, a set
1: fixed goal in mind, but I tended to react to thoughtful opportunities as they were presented. So, as you mentioned, I I went to HLS, I clerked for a year on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco, which was my first exposure to the Bay Area. I literally got off a plane to start my clerkship and found an apartment I'd never been out here before. And in the year that I was here, I developed friendships and got a sense of the Silicon Valley vibe a little bit and thought, yeah, this was a great place to live and I can imagine it's a great place to work. I finished my clerkship. I went back to Wall Street, uh, Davis Polk, uh, where I practiced for about three and a half years. And the real reason for that was that's kind of the path I knew, particularly in the early 80s. That's what um, so many of us coming out of law school were doing, uh, kind of that that large sucking sound into corporate law. And Davis Polk was great because it gave me an opportunity to do all kinds of legal work, and they... They had me spend almost half my time in the London office, Um, and the the result of all of that when I finally returned to the States from London was the conclusion that, you know, while I liked it, I didn't love it, I thought I was okay at it, I didn't think I was going to be great at it, and I really wanted to do something else, although it wasn't quite clear to me what that something else would be, and I spent about I was six months doing information interviews. I, I mean, I still had a day job, so six months is less actual time than it sounds. But I thought about teaching, and so I talked to law professors, and I thought about prosecuting, and I talked to friends who were in the, uh, in the uh, state or federal uh, prosecutorial offices. And I thought about finance, and I thought about business. And I literally stumbled in on a kind of a cold call to a firm out here in San Francisco called Hamburg quist which was a early-stage finance and venture capital firm. It was founded in the late 60s, um, by a couple of guys. Uh, they happened to be around to take companies like Apple Computer, and Genentech, and Adobe Public. I didn't, I didn't know anybody there. It was literally a cold call. I was requesting an information interview. And I went in for a 20-minute interview, and I spent an hour and a half with that guy. And he had me meet another guy, and he had to meet another guy. Anyway, I walked out of there at 5 that afternoon. Um, and I thought that was, that was telling because I genuinely liked everybody that I had met. And I didn't know a lot about finance. I certainly didn't know a lot about entrepreneurial finance. Uh, But they were trying to develop a bigger practice in the mergers business. I had done a fair amount of merger work. And it seemed like there was going to be a mutually symbiotic relationship. I could help them build an understanding of mergers, and they could sort of teach me corporate finance and entrepreneurial finance along the way. And in the course of our discussions over a few months, as they were trying to figure out what to do with me, uh, the stock market crashed. This was October of '87. And so all of my Davis Polk buddies thought I was just crazy. You know, I mean, I am naturally a risk averse bunch, and they thought I, you know, I'd last three months there. But it was probably a testament to how much I wanted to do something different that I ended up accepting their offer and I, I joined them in uh, late uh, 1987. Um, and I started just as a punk associate. We were building mergers business among you know small public companies, large private companies, and. Um, after about 10 years or so, I had slowly worked my way up. I was running the investment bank now at Hamburg and Quist. We had gone public, so we ourselves were a small publicly traded company. Uh, Chase Manhattan came knocking on the door. This was 1999, and they, uh, they bought the firm. And I suddenly found myself uh, as a division of a very large money-centered bank. And within nine months of that, uh, J.P. Morgan merges, merges with Chase, and I found myself uh, running an even smaller division of a much larger bank. And what transpired, this was now 2000, we're coming into the dot-com crash in 2001, and it really became the perfect storm for me um we we were now as i said a small part of this very large uh, financial institution um there was tremendous pressure to integrate everything so while chase had let us remain sort of autonomous jp morgan chase was not going to let us do that there was always the usual scramble for you know who's going to have which job and who's going to have which authority in the middle of all of that um, two other disasters emerged one my my good friend and business partner who had recruited me to, Hamburg to quest back in, um, uh, 1987, when we were when I first started discussions, a gentleman named Dan Case uh, passed away from uh, terminal brain cancer in his mid 40s. And in the middle of all of that, um, the uh, dot-com bubble burst. Uh, there basically was very little investment banking work in the world which I knew, and you know, jobs were, were essentially melting away. So I found myself within about 18 months running the global tech, media, telecom practice for J.P. Morgan. Uh, commuting to New York almost every week, uh, scrambling in the inevitable HR tug-of-war that exists in these very large organizations. And I wasn't having much fun. All of, the, all of the stuff that had drawn me to entrepreneurial finance in the first place, working with guys who want to change the world and you know ambitious, excited, often ADD-stricken entrepreneurs, had kind of disappeared, and I found myself calling on basically Fortune 50 companies with a J.B. Morgan Chase card. So it, it wasn't really what I enjoyed doing very much in the meantime so now it's sort of 2004-2005 um steve case one of the aol co-founders who i had gotten to know over the decades because dan case my hamerton partner was his older brother um, was also a a little bit in the wilderness it was after the aol time warner merger had been foundering he found himself uh, trying to figure out what he wanted to do next and he reached out and he had this idea for revolution and he said i want to make you know big bets uh, disruptive industry, stage agnostic, mostly my money. Um, do you want to join me? And I said, that sounded like fun. It was just the right right timing for me, right timing for him. And so we formed Revolution in 2005. And by 2010, we had uh, evolved the firm to much more of a conventional um, uh, asset management business. Uh, we raised an institutional fund, uh, where we're still the largest investor, but we've taken money from, you know, universities and endowments and pension funds and things like that. And then in 2013, we raised an early stage, uh, fund, which is the fund that, uh, I manage, uh, with three other people. Um, and then uh, about nine months ago, we raised another late stage growth equity fund. So, well, there's a long-winded story, but we're now, um, Running a, a small uh, venture capital growth equity firm with about a billion and a half under management, and that was the circuitous path that got me to uh, to where I am today.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the thing one of the cool things about Revolution actually is is um, you know in the founding DNA you've got this kind of operator as well as a you know seasoned finance entrepreneurial finance type uh, type intertwine, um, and then what you also have is you have you know venture you have growth equity you have a place called, um, an investment portal called places, which I hope we talk about a little bit more, but, you know, talk a little bit more about revolution. I think, you know, other than the things I just mentioned, some of the things that, you know, I found interesting and differentiated about the firm is, you know, two, two main things, you know, one is the brand that your team has really developed around this, you know, rise of the rest concept, right. Essentially focusing less of the portfolio on overserved regions like Silicon Valley, San Francisco, you know, New York, Boston, um, and instead, finding companies from, you know, across the nation. And I think another thing is that's interesting and a little bit differentiated is having a strong D.C.-based presence, you know, which now more than ever right. uh, seems to be valuable, both you know because of the current political climate as well as because of, you know, how integral – Regulatory strategy has started to become for startups that are really trying to displace, you know, large legacy incumbents. So talk a little bit more, you know, about revolution, um, and it's evolution over a little, you know, over a period of time, the investment thesis and, and why you guys have really over indexed outside the Valley. Yeah.
1: Um, happy to. So the investment thesis has not really changed since um, Steve had the original kind of blueprints for what he wanted to do. And by that I mean he wanted to take capital and he wanted to back entrepreneurs who were working in pre-existing markets where, where consumers or businesses were already spending billions of dollars but where the incumbents were, you know, fat, lazy, and happy and kind of looking the other way, so that when the founder showed up with usually some technology in his pocket that allowed him to do things faster, better, cheaper, um, at some point the incumbents would wake up and go, oh, my God, look what's going on over here. And that would provide, A, a a natural kind of pricing umbrella for what we wanted to do. We wouldn't have to invent a new market. Uh, But B, would also provide a natural evolution for companies uh, potentially to be acquired as they grew. So, for example, our, our first investment, we were one of the largest investors in a company called uh, Zipcar. And Zipcar, as you may recall, had this idea of sort of neighborhood pods of cars. and You, you, you know, it's all self-provisioning. You could sort of show up and drive and return the car and get your bill. And there had been nothing new in the rental car business in 50 years. And we knew that there were people sitting around the Hertz and Avis boardroom kind of laughing at Zipcar, you know, thinking, oh, those those guys only rent by the hour. You know, we rent for 24 hours. Um, not really appreciating what you can do to a cost structure when everybody has a computer in their pocket and you don't need to talk to anybody to get into a rental car. So we, you know, we invested. that. Um, we helped it scale across the country, uh, ultimately took it public, and then sold it to, uh, sold it to Avis. Um, similarly, we... Um, incubated and then funded and grew the, what became the largest national medicare health insurance exchange and this was even before obamacare was uh, was uh, put into law we were funding this initiative um because we had a sense that this was where the market was going to go and oh by the way nobody else was was doing it so we had a couple guys out of the insurance industry and they were they were brilliant and ultimately that Business was acquired by Towers Watson, a large um, employer employee benefits business. Um, we incubated and then funded a alternative payment network for both credit cards and debit cards. The idea being that, you know, again, credit card business, nothing new in 50 years except, you know, points and travel points. Every time you swipe your credit card, 2 to 3% just gets lost. That's almost $70 billion a year just in the United States. So these guys who'd come out of the credit card industry showed up and they had a... Patented way of essentially moving money around over the internet, of all things, instead of using these big mainframes that Visa, Mastercard, and Discover had used. Um, so we uh, we incubated that, grew that, ultimately sold it to American Express, where they're using it in uh, in China, where they lack the infrastructure of those large. Um, so that was always the investment thesis. After we take took other people's money, we bifurcated a little bit so we had a later stage effort. We have an earlier stage effort. So I, I typically invest, you know, first into these companies, Series A and Series B uh, rounds, you know, typically writing a 5 to $10 million check. My colleagues on the, on the growth equity side of the house will write, you know, $25, $30, 40000000 million checks into their companies. But the underlying investment thesis, you know, disruptive ideas, big markets uh, has not changed. A couple things have changed, however, and that that highlights the two areas uh, that you touched on. One is, um, I've been out here in Silicon Valley for over a quarter century, and it's a great place to be, uh, particularly if you're in the venture business, because The information flow is so efficient. It's really very hard to do things in stealth mode. Everybody kind of talks to everybody. And you can get pretty smart about an industry and competitors and a market without too much effort, particularly if you've been out here for a long time. On the other hand, uh, capital is almost as efficient as information. So there are great venture firms out here, lots of them. And there are great entrepreneurs out here, lots of them. Uh, But it's very, very competitive. And in my judgment, more often than not, opportunities to invest are almost always priced to perfection. And the last thing I want to hear when I'm talking to an entrepreneur says, oh, geez, I've got got 12 proposals from different venture capital firms, but we like yours the best. And, you know, suddenly I feel like a complete knucklehead. I must have really overpaid if I meet out a lot of guys to (laughs) to get my money in in this entrepreneur's uh, company. So um, we take advantage of the Valley. We invest here occasionally and opportunistically, but mostly we get on airplanes and we look for opportunities um, elsewhere in the United States and Europe and uh, even Canada. And the basic idea is that when, when you show up in those communities, there's just much less venture capital. They are so happy to see you. They want your money, of course, but they really want your advice and they want your involvement because they don't live in the same ecosystem that that we live in out here where everything is available 24-7 and there's no shortage of people willing to give you advice and no shortage of people willing to make uh, connections. And there are advantages and disadvantages to that, but from our perspective as an investor, um, while it takes more time, and obviously it's a hassle, you know, to travel a lot. Um, we just think there are better opportunities. So when we look at where we've made our money historically, you know, it's Tampa, it's Salt Lake, it's Baltimore, it's Boston, um, Denver. Um, and I suspect we'll continue uh, that pattern going forward. The other element that you mentioned was the D.C. present, and obviously that's because Steve and AOL originally were, uh, uh, AOL was founded in D.C., and Steve's been there for about 30 years. Um, but increasingly, the connection to um, uh, the political landscape and the regulatory landscape has been serving us uh, extremely well. And we think, particularly if you're, you uh, Trying to take advantage of the internet and the degrees of freedom the internet provides you, uh, understanding the regulatory environment is going to be an absolute requirement. Uh, you know, you didn't you didn't really need that for an app, but the next way of the internet, which really contemplates involvement in much more complex business processes, whether it's healthcare or education or financial technology, those are all regulated to death at state, local, and federal levels, and being able to navigate that. Um, we think it gives us a competitive advantage for a lot of the entrepreneurs that we work with. One of my partners, actually my general counsel, was a gentleman named Ron Klein also a graduate of the law school, um, former chief of staff to, to Vice President Biden, former chief of staff to Vice President Gore, is about as knowledgeable in navigating the federal regulatory landscape as anybody I've ever met. And we, he spends a lot of time with our portfolio companies as they're planning different growth strategies, giving them advice on what to do to avoid pitfalls uh, that seem obvious to him but are not obvious to
0: entrepreneurs yeah no i think i think that's right i think the um a couple of, a, a lot of the things that you said there we could you know kind of continue the conversation on i really like the idea of the winner's curse especially for you know the rise of the rest um being in atlanta myself i think one of the things that i see for uh, and having spent a year out in the valley before i came back you know out here one of the things i see a lot is um startups out here or startups on the east coast even comparatively to the valley there there isn't necessarily price for perfection right and uh, right, fundamentals right. or why people invest in startups out here happen to be different you know on the east coast and especially here in the southeast there's a lot of focus on revenue traction um whereas at, yep. you know the silicon valley startup I was at we had raised over you know double digit million dollars uh with uh, with really a pre-revenue focus Right, so it's a very different well, I,
1: environment. It's a very different environment, and I've met entrepreneurs who've been coached that way. You know, because we have an office both out here and in DC. This was a couple of years ago. We met one team, and they were very thoughtful, and they did their presentation, and they had you know financial forecast in the uh, uh, in their presentation. And I ran into them about a month or two later out here, and I think they'd forgotten that we had met. Um, and we were watching the presentation out here, and all the financial information had disappeared. That was going to be the least, <laughs> the least informative basis on which to make an investment decision. Once you got to Silicon Valley, so yeah, go figure.
0: it's no, it's 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 funny, right? It's it's always a little bit concerning too, because I think sometimes in this kind of environment, you feel that companies are raising really the next round almost for financial arbitrage. They're raising the next round to get to the next round, and and I think the other piece about capital is. Capital doesn't solve your problems. It's it's a multiplier, right? It's either going to accelerate your issues. It's going to accelerate your successes. But it, capital, in and of itself, doesn't um, doesn't answer you know answer your issues. And I think what you know what I'm interested in, and um, in terms of what you're seeing, especially with kind of focusing outside the valley, having uh, you know a, a strong regulatory in-house knowledge base. You know, I'm curious as to what the next, you know, technology wave that you're most excited about is, right? You've, you've had the unique experience of, you know, being at the highest levels of both finance and technology. And I, I think when you overlay technology development and financial cycles, you see a pretty interesting trend, right? With the market and financial cycles, there's a lot more volatility, especially in the short term as consumer sentiment wavers. But in tech product cycles, you know, progress comes at a pretty steady pace and in a consistent manner, right? Every 10 to 15 years, There's a new fundamental breakthrough in in tech products. And and these time horizons all have a gestation phase and a growth phase. And in each of these life cycles, there's a platform that goes mainstream. Applications are built on top of that platform. And it becomes a mutually reinforcing cycle. right? So we saw this with PC, the internet, mobile. Um, Now I think we're on the cusp of VR, AR. You know, which tech wave do you think is, is going to be the next real wave to hit? And, you know, for you as an investor, which industries, if if any, are you most focused on?
1: So we're all products of our uh, of our experience, and my partners and I sit around the table. We naturally gravitate to different ideas or different industries that we like. So, you know, I was in Hamburg and J.P. Morgan for almost 18 years and it, it become a pretty good finance geek. Um, sometimes a little too myopic, but I tend to gravitate toward fintech companies that come in, uh, come into the shop, and I tend to spend more time with those, just because I have a basic understanding of kind of the underlying premise of the business. And then, of course, there are you know an infinite number of flavors and business models that get superimposed on that. Um, one of my other partners has done a lot of work in the e-commerce space, which you know just exploded about four or five years ago, but has been a very difficult industry in which to. Consist uh, consistently make money, even some of the spectacular e-commerce startups that now exits, you know, things like, you know, Dollar Shave Club or Jet.com or some of these um, were, were uh, turned out to be great stocks, but were still at the time of the sale, lousy businesses, because they had yet to break through and, and uh, make money, even at, even at considerable scale. So it tends to be in a, in, a, in a venture capital firm, it's a little like the old British Merchant Guild, um, you, you kind of work together. And it's a consensual give and take, and we're all products of our own natural biases. Um, Where we're looking going forward, I would say we're not yet on the cusp of uh, some of the what we call flavors of the day—the the AR, the VR, you know, Bitcoin, and that sort of thing. Just because there tends to be initially out of the gate very much a momentum play, and then people step back, and, oh my God, what is what is in fact the value add here? What is in fact the business? And then the, the second generation or second wave tends to present more uh, more opportunities. Um, I think the best lesson in that regard is back in like 1928, I think there were over a hundred different automobile companies and within... You know, within a decade, I think there were six. You know, it just things consolidate very quickly. Um, so as it relates to uh, where we do spend time, the, the, the category that you would call AI is probably the closest to how we think about it. And by that, it's it's um, a, a little less highbrow than that. We, we look at a lot of interesting opportunities in which machine learning, which is a little less robust than AI, is brought to bear to make uh, uh, humans better decision makers, or in some cases, make the decision And we haven't invested in autonomous driving or anything like that, but we've invested in companies like uh, financial technology companies in which we're lending money to people with no credit scores. Uh, They're unbanked or they're underbanked. And so you need to figure out ways that you can make thoughtful credit decisions with a good probability of getting paid back uh, when you're lending money to people that have uh, never borrowed money before. And that's a lot of computational power. It's a lot of big data analysis, uh, both that they generate themselves and that they acquire from other sources uh, that helps drive more informed um, Decision making. That's the first area. The second area we spend a lot of time on are old, kind of ossified industries that are kind of coming late to productivity improvements uh, that are driven by computational power and the internet combined. So we've we've looked at and we've invested in SaaS software companies, one of which is in Atlanta, which approaches a particular type of industry that has been uh, underserved by any technological innovation, and provides an avenue for them to do things faster, better, cheaper, and with fewer people. We've done that in um, the commercial construction industry. We've done that in the uh, membership. Uh, association space. Uh, we've done that in the online um, booking and scheduling space for uh, places like you know um,
0: uh, spas and wellness centers and things like that that are, that are for the most part still been bound to paper and pencil for which there are some really innovative software solutions. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, you know, you 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 mentioned a lot about kind of the you know the different pieces of technology that are going to come up, and I I think that has a, a very correlative effect with the reality, which is the landscape of startups has you know dramatically changed um, in the last 15 years, right? And and that's at the micro level and at the macro level. I think at the macro level, you know, market sizes are significantly bigger. There were 50 million people on the internet in 1995. I'm sure you know, Steve can internalize this internalize this very well. And there's going to be 5 billion people on mobile by 2020, right? And at least in the early stage, cost structures have also exponentially shrunk. You know, you're not spending 10 to 15 million racking up servers anymore. You can just power up AWS on a, on a couple laptops. And I, I think at the micro level, the excitement around startups and tech has also significantly shifted, you know, in society itself. it It really feels in many ways like we're on, you know, the verge of a lot of ideas that have actually been thrown out there. Historically, really being able to work and, and not only work but work at scale. And and so, what I'm interested in kind of digging into next is, you know, you've seen a number of successful portfolio companies. You've also served on you know the boards of of winners in, in particular industries like Everyday Health, you know Barnes and Nobles. As you've been an investor, have you seen companies, you know, change and and really remain the same from you know the 2000 kind of era to, to now, right? And so particularly you know what are what are some of the similarities or differences you see in things like uh, fundraising you know relative complexity between you know getting started versus scaling other operational challenges right. market opportunities you know how do you how do you think about those kinds of things
1: yeah it's really interesting because there's been Pretty dramatic change on both the company side and on the capital side, really, in the past decade. On the company side, and you alluded to this, it's just so much cheaper to start a business. Um, If you can scrounge together, you know, maybe six figures, maybe a little bit more, maybe even mid six figures. You're often running to the races. Uh, Fifteen years ago, that wasn't the case. You wanted to start a business, you were always talking seven figures, and that to say nothing of you know the hardware business where you're often talking eight figures. Um, everything is just less expensive now. You can um, store in the cloud, so you don't need to buy hardware. You can offsource technical talent to Eastern Europe and India, so you don't need to pay. Valley prices or New York City prices or or even Atlanta prices. Um, Access to uh, media is so much cheaper because everybody's walking around with a billboard and communication device in their pocket. So all of that has made the the, you know, just add water aspect of starting a business um, so much more accessible. Um, there are consequences of that. We can touch on those in a second. On the capital side, similarly, the sources of capital um, have just exploded. You know, 50 years ago, there was no venture capital or 60 years ago. then uh, 20 years ago, there were a handful of venture capital firms. Now there are hundreds of venture capital firms, there are family offices, there are hedge funds, there are mutual funds that play in the space. And if you've made any money in the space and you can fog a mirror, you also became a venture capitalist, meaning you were willing to write a five-figure or six-figure check um, to seed a whole bunch of opportunities. And that phenomenon really began about five or six years ago. So all of that means that access to capital at the early stage and access to all of the other stuff you need to start a business um, is much more accessible, and so not surprisingly, there were lots of new businesses that started up. In my work, that's actually pretty good, because every one of those businesses is kind of a call option for me on another opportunity. We're, we're generally not seed financers, you know, we're not writing a $100,000 check. We, we come in with, you know, maybe the, you might still be pre-revenue, but you've got a product that's beyond just, you know, vaporware or, or PowerPoint slides, and you can prove that something works. Um, but in the meantime, they're just, that, that universe, that target is so much richer because there are so many hundreds of more opportunities that are out being funded. The capital gets a little trickier because for every one of those angel investors you know, who could write a check because they could fog a mirror, they suddenly realize that you know, most companies actually consume capital for quite a while. And they were often being asked to write second, third, and fourth checks. And it was, holy cow, I didn't realize that's what venture capitalists have to do. I thought it was sort of one and you're done. So there became, and we're still seeing it, a lot of really interesting companies that had financed at the seed stage that are just having trouble raising Series A, or they're raising Series A institutional money at much lower valuations than they, than they thought, because um, they just got a little ahead of themselves, and institutional investors tend to be a little bit more disciplined about things like valuation when they uh, when they write checks. So there have been dramatic changes on both sides of that equation. I will still say this is the best country in the world uh, to be an entrepreneur or to be a, a venture capitalist because the opportunity sets on both sides are just so large. and I don't see that changing for some time to come.
0: And so what's your general feel for going? what's going on in the venture markets today, right? So we touched on it a little bit. And, um, you know, there's a lot of interesting data out there. The markets have definitely cooled down, you know, since 2014, 2015. Um, but, you know, despite this cool down, LPs seem more bullish about putting money in venture. And I think there are a couple underlying mechanics that point to why this may be, right? So more innovation is happening on, on the private side compared to public companies. There are material rounds to be a part of pre-IPO, a lot of the uh, institutional Investors can get involved at the late stages and just much larger checks. Less companies are going public, so there's less opportunity. Interest rates are low, um, and then the market sizes and, and kind of cost dynamics piece that we we touched on are, are increasingly favorable for new startups. So, how do you you know how do you think about valuations, uh, the state of venture and and capital markets today? And I, I think it's an interesting question from the perspective of. Um, you know, there's there's always the talk of, is are you know, are we in another bubble? I think, you know, the consensus and and there's a lot of data that points to this of why, you know, this time and this environment is very, very different from 2000. You don't have the sheer level of just public shareholder exposure. Um, but I think the other piece that's, that's interesting and, and that's often kind of thought about in this space is, you know, valuations can be, you know, a little bit overheated, a little bit underheated. But I think if you have the fundamental premise that the companies that are getting built now are really the, you know, the the generational companies of the future and, and they're not the ones that are gonna monetize just on a favorable financing environment, like a, a favorable MA or or IPO climate. It's hard it's hard to see actually how you can't you're you're not bullish on venture, um, because ostensibly the value that's gonna be created is just gonna be so large that it's not really gonna matter in, in, in the grand scheme of things. So what's what's kinda your thought on that sentiment? What's your thought on what's going on in venture these days? to be a venture uh, capitalist. Uh, and I say
1: that now as compared with 2015 when I was still a venture capitalist. But it was just very difficult to put money to work. So I'm, I'm managing a $200 million fund. My investors pay me to find good ideas and invest capital. And in 2015, I invested in just one new opportunity. I probably, you know, kicked the tires on several hundred companies, but only one could I get the sun, the moon, and the stars to align. And you go back and you look at the data, and I think in the second and third quarter of 2015, there was a unicorn being created, you know, a billion-dollar-plus valued private company every four days. And you go, you know, like, I just can't compete in this because – it's clearly a frothy market and unless I know I can get out in a frothy market, I don't want to get in on a frothy market. So things were just it was just very hard to put money to work. That has clearly changed, and part of the reason for that is, and you touched on it, is exits are still hard to come by. Making money is still, you know, it takes a lot of work, and they don't happen every day. And, you know, the number of IPOs in 2016, he certainly tech-backed IPOs, and he can count on two hands. It was, it was single digits. And so there, there was, you know, people were putting money in at these lofty valuations, but nobody was getting out. So that drove the value of the asset class particularly late stage, but but less so, so prominently early stage, down to where now it's feeling like the opportunity set is pretty good. Because throughout this time, even in 2015, the, the companies were pretty good. Uh, the entrepreneurs were pretty talented. The ideas were very innovative. And as one of my partners says, yeah, it's a good company. It's just a bad stock because you don't think you can own it on a, on a term where you're going to be able to make money your for your investors, when it when it's time to get out, and the sad truth about venture capital is, you know, we we work these companies very hard. We, ours is not a spray and pray approach. We'll you know we'll invest in five or six companies a year. We're very actively involved, but most um, venture capital backed companies don't succeed. In fact, two thirds of venture backed companies don't even return the money that was invested in them. To say nothing about a profit, so. You, you, you that's a longer thing. you just have to be very very careful and there's probably no criteria that's more correlated with success ultimate financial success than you're going in valuation and when you can get your hands on a thoughtful valuation going in even for a company that's good not great um, you're going to make good money on the other hand if you're investing in a great company at a money valuation um, You'll feel good because you'll tell everybody you're in the next Facebook or you're in the next Uber, but you're not going to make any money for anybody. And that's, you know, ultimately
0: not what we're paid to do. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a couple of nuggets there. I mean, Venture, as you know very well, right, is a slugging percentage game. It's not a batting average game. Um, and I think right. one of, you know, one of the um, one of the pieces that the media can fall in love with often is, is valuations, but not, um, not actually the inner workings of the term sheet, right? Raising money right. is, right. you know, raising a billion dollars with a, 3x liquidation preference isn't the you know isn't the same it doesn't paint as great of a story um, as what's often you know kind of kind of said in the media and so you know what I'm, I'm kind of interested in in that element right it I, I think it actually speaks very deeply to the rise of the rest thesis that you guys have and and you know one of the things um, you know I see these days is you know obviously Silicon Valley in San Francisco has its own cachet right with respect to talent capital right. ideation. And as entrepreneurship has become you know more attractive these days, I think you're starting to see a lot more of a desire of of cities to become the next Silicon Valley. And you know, I, I think that attempt to become an innovation hub in conceptually is, is admirable, right? And I think um that's that's good for society. I, I think the the actual piece of trying to entirely emulate or replicate Silicon Valley, though, is a failing strategy. And and that thought process actually comes from you know how disruptive innovation works in tech, right you know after Microsoft, the next great tech business wasn't an operating system. it was search with Google after Google, the same thing it wasn't a search business, it was a social network with facebook and so I think in many ways, you know the next great innovation hub isn't just going to be silicon Valley um, you know part two and I, I think we've started to see you know some some cities um, have really started to focus on um going all in on their competitive strengths which has been positive i think you know pittsburgh phoenix have done a really good job on this specifically with self-driving cars and self-driving car pilots right. and that of course has you know ancillary benefits for the ecosystem attracts machine learning and ai talent establishes a good regulatory environment sets a precedent on how startups can work with large companies you know if you were clean sheeting a plan for a city to really kind of become an innovation hub how would you do it, right? What would you focus on? What lessons from Silicon Valley would you take and then which ones would you leave behind? Yeah, it's really an interesting question because the the special sauce that is
1: Silicon Valley has been attempted not only in other cities in this country but other cities around the world with limited success for the most part. You know, you had outside of Outside of Cambridge Boston, and Boston, in the life sciences space, and a pretty good ecosystem for a while. Um, Carnegie Mellon, as you say, is doing some really interesting things in the Pittsburgh ecosystem around robotics. But if I were creating with a clean piece of paper today, um, and I guess as uh, two law school graduates, this is probably a worthwhile discussion. The first one is sort of geography, and I, you know, I position my my hub, you know, within reasonable driving distance of a of a good university with you know that does work in computational sciences, does work in life science. And things like that, and there are a lot of those in this country. It doesn't have to be just Harvard or Stanford. There are a lot of those. But where people miss the boat, I think, and where California really got it right about 60 years ago, and this is going to sound arcane and legal and nutty, but I believe it to my core that it is the most important factor. Um, California does not enforce non-compete agreements. So just like we have a very liquid capital base out here, we have a very liquid labor base out here. And you can be looking for company on Tuesday and think you have a better idea and go across the street and start Company B on Wednesday and compete with Company A. You can't steal trade secrets, right? You can't uh, steal employees because those those contracts are obviously enforceable. But if you've got a better idea, you can go compete and no one's going to hold you accountable. And that was a decision by the California judiciary to not enforce non-compete agreements as a matter of public policy. And I think that's critically important. So the next thing I would do after I position myself next to the university, I'd march to my state legislature and I'd say, I want a law that gets rid of uh, non-compete agreements.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. You know, I've I've had that, I've asked that question to a lot of VCs before and I've heard, you know, having a local capital base, having, you know, a good you know, enterprise ecosystem, if that's what you're going for, having good research universities. I've never heard the um the liquid talent pool piece. That's that's an interesting one.
1: And I was going to say it's probably the answer you get from a Harvard law right? yeah. degree, but I, I genuinely—those other things are important. I actually think this is more important.
0: Yeah, and I—I I think that I think that makes a lot of sense actually, because of the next piece that I was going to talk on, which is, I think one of the strongest, you know, multipliers for a startup ecosystem is actually being able to drive network effects, right? And so if you, you know, if we kind of follow that logic through, if you have a very liquid talent pool, um, you can really drive network effects to the perspective of you know formulation of new companies, new teams, et cetera, being able to form much faster. in situations in which they might have been locked up, you know, had they, had they failed. Um, I think, right. I, you know, it's, it's
1: somewhat, I mean, it was, you know, it's somewhat, you mentioned Google and you mentioned Facebook as, as sort of leaders in their respective. Neither of those were first movers. You know, I think Google was the like 12th or 15th search engine, and there have been four or five other social uh, networks before Facebook. But the ability to start to get a little bit of traction and then attract talent, I think, was really helpful for both of those companies.
0: That's exactly right. And I think, actually, you know, these days to, to kind of this question and pushing it forward, you know, there's an interesting phenomenon also going on you know, in the public markets and, and M&A that I think have some effect on, you know, cities and, and their potential as innovation hubs. You know, on, on the public market side, um, you know, for one, there's significantly less public companies today than a decade or so ago, right? We're down from 9,000 to 4,000 and dropping. Um, and then right. in the M&A world, I think, you know, the heavy hitter public tech companies like the Facebooks, Amazons, Googles, et cetera, just have so much cash on their balance sheets that they're really creating a market for, for large-scale M&A, for which previously, you know, to get liquidity, you had to go public. And I see the positive impact, you know, because companies can act at scale. But I think there's a really negative impact, too, in the sense that, you know, select companies are really concentrating a significant amount of talent and innovation potential, right? Whether it's acquihires, it it gets hard to build, or even small acquisitions or large acquisitions, it, it gets hard to build, you know, a Google competitor when Google is picking off you know, sub-50, sub-100, sub-200 million dollar businesses, you know, left and right for, for technology components and, and talent. So how do you, you know, how does that impact kind of your rise of the rest thesis? And, you know, what do you think other cities should be thinking about with, with this kind of environment as the backdrop? Because as I see it, if, you know, the the major tech companies, the, you know, once you get to a certain scale, like a billion, two billion, there's only five, six companies that can really buy you if you're talking about a pure strategic technology play. Those companies are all in Silicon right. Valley. Right. So, how do you think about that? Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I wouldn't say that they're all in Silicon Valley. they certainly—I mean, when you when you define the world in terms of you know search engines and social networks, that's certainly true. But um, you know, you've seen uh, in in commerce, right? Walmart buying uh, very technologically innovative companies. IBM has a long history of it, obviously, and it's not a Silicon Valley company. As do many of the uh, European engineering companies, also not Silicon Valley companies. Um, so I think it depends. So I mentioned at the top uh, of our discussion that we, you know, we tend to. Old companies that we think are going to excel in their markets where they're already large incumbents. And it's very hard, you know, if you've read Clay Christensen's work, it's just very hard for these large incumbents to cannibalize the current business uh, until they have to, and by then they usually do it through acquisition. And we saw, we see no shame in that. So we, we invest in companies. Our expectation is that they will remain independent, vibrant companies. Uh, maybe they'll go to the public markets, but as you say, the odds of that are growing longer with each passing year. So as a practical matter, because ultimately we have to return money to our, our limited partners, we expect these companies are going to get bought. Um, but if it's a fintech company... it probably going to get bought by a money center bank, and that's not necessarily going to be a Silicon Valley uh, behemoth. Uh, if it's an e-commerce company, hell, you know, it can get bought by you know any large player in, in brick-and-mortar college and, be, and still be uh, extremely effective. Um, if it's a software company, yeah, there's probably a bit more of a bias to Silicon Valley, but even there, we've seen a lot of acquisitions that go outside of California. So that creative destruction, destruction that you know growth and recycling of capital through acquisition uh, is, is a pretty old phenomenon venture capital and we don't, we don't see that changing and I suspect it's even going to accelerate because the bigger you get, the harder it is to drive organic growth uh, and you have to go elsewhere because you enjoy these very large multiples because you're perceived by Wall Street as being a fast-growing company. But that's no longer true um, organically. You've got to do it inorganically and they'll move pretty quick to, uh, to acquire uh, related
0: tuck-in acquisitions or potential competitors as the case may be. Yep. No, that that makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I one of the books um, that's on my bookshelf, admittedly I haven't read yet, but has certainly piqued my interest is actually, um, you know, Steve's r- uh, recent expanded version of of his book, The Third Wave, and and in it, you know, wave, he, he yeah. focuses a lot on on startup friendly policies. And just getting back a little bit to you know the fact that your firm has a has a unique DC bend, which not many venture firms do. Although, admittedly, I think it's a strong strategy, and and some of the firms have actually started right. Andreessen Horowitz has. Um, you know, kind of the, the lobbying regulation arm where they can plug portfolio companies in well. Um, you know, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts, especially, you know, with what's going on in the political climate today and and with 2017, with, you know, Q1 having just finished, earnings of a lot of the large tech codes just being released, you know, what are the policies that, you know, you, you would like to see thought through and, and enacted in the foreseeable future really to keep, you know, American business um, competitive, the American technology um, industry competitive, and, and a place where people around the world really want to come here to start companies? Yeah, it's such a great question, and it's such an important question right now in the context of the, of the political debates that are that are going. There, there are a handful of issues that matter a lot to the world
1: that we live in, but probably none is more important uh, than having a rational immigration policy. And to do what we do now, which is to take you know the best and the brightest from all over the world, uh, bring them to our universities and Teach them with the best and the brightest here, and then force them to leave to go compete with us is about as insane a rational, uh, insane the national policies you could possibly imagine. I mean, everything about that is wrong. And when you look at the history of uh, entrepreneurship in the United States, um, it's got a heavy first generation American bent to it. Over 40% of the Fortune 500 companies today are managed by first-generation American people who came to this country or the children of people who came to this country. Over two-thirds of the employees in technology here in the Bay Area uh, were born outside the United States. And they want to live here. They want to create value here. They all want to become billionaires and build great companies here. And many of them are extraordinarily talented. And to force them to leave armed with the intellectual capital that we have bestowed upon them uh, to go compete with us just makes absolutely no uh, no sense to me whatsoever. So that's, that's the first thing. Um, rational um, immigration. Policy uh, is extremely important to uh, entrepreneurial capital formation On the second area, and Steve, my partner Steve Case, spent a lot of time on this um, in 2010 and 2011 Um, Capital formation is really important for these companies We talked about how the public markets have been increasingly inhospitable The number of public companies has been shrinking Um Uber raises more money every day if you divide it out than Google raised as a private company before it ever went public. So all of the wealth creation is now being concentrated in a handful of institutions and high net worths. Whereas um, 15 years ago, most of the wealth creation that came from the innovation economy happened in the public markets for the benefits of you know, retirement accounts and pension funds and things like that. I don't think that's good. Uh, it certainly doesn't do anything to the income inequality issues we face in this country. So capital formation at the public market level is pretty important. There are a lot of things you can do uh, to, to, to take the friction out of that process. Um, Steve was involved in, in one of them. It was a, a a law that um, he and the council of competitive helped draft called the jumpstart our jobs bill jobs act and it essentially made it easier for small companies to go public it reduced some of the disclosure requirements it reduced some of the accounting reporting requirements it reduced some of the filing requirements and it's had some effect it's still early it's only it's only been uh, alive for about uh, three years, but things like that that make capital formation uh, more available to uh, public investors, I think, is, is very important policy for what we try to do out
0: here. Yeah, I think both of those issues are, are you know, incredibly interesting from the perspective of, you know, the immigration issue. I often think, you know, for, for students that I went to, you know, college with, law school with, that end up uh, going back overseas, you know, in a knowledge and information society, it almost feels like we're giving away our strategic weapons. Um, in, a world, so. right? in, so. in a world, right? In a world in which data is the new competitive advantage and, and the new monetizable resource, as opposed to oil, um, it, it it feels like we're shooting ourselves in the foot. And I think the on the capital formation point, there's there's almost no greater example than what's going on with with activists and hedge funds. You know, you see these activist investors holding public companies incredibly rigorously accountable on the public side, quarter to quarter, and then a lot of them are are dumping that, you know, taking back that money in the form of you know, dividends or so and then dumping that money in the form of late stage rounds on, on the private side. Right. Some of these large rounds for the lifts, et cetera, of the world, right? Um are funded by the same exact people. So it it shows where the, you know, where the money is going shows where the action is happening. And it's it's always uh it's it's a little bit interesting and a little bit worrisome sometimes to see you know, see how these capital flows are, are moving. Right. No,
1: it's very true. Very yeah. true.
0: But so on a you know on a on a lighter note, David, um, I wanted to round out you know the our, our conversation with a with a couple of um, a couple of points you know on, on your personal journey. You know I, I want to switch gears from focusing on on content back, and you know I I think that careers are all about people. You know you've worked with obviously great people over the years at you know, Davis Polk, J.P. Morgan, um, you know a number of other places. Obviously at Revolution with folks uh, like Steve Case and the rest of your team. I'm always interested in asking, you know, folks that have, you know, have done well in their career and have really interacted with, um, you know, with folks at the top of industry and across industries. How do you think about success and leadership, right? What are, you know, in, in your environment, whether it's with founders, whether it's with investors, you know, what what are the qualities and the characteristics you really see in, in people that are good leaders um, in, in society? Probably the...
1: Me over the course of my career uh, was this gentleman Dan Case that I mentioned near the top of our discussion. This is Steve Case's older brother, the, the one who was my, really my boss for 15 years at this firm before we sold to, uh, to Chase Manhattan Bank and um he was completely self-taught he was just a year older than i was Uh, but dan was almost always the smartest guy in the room he just uh he he just was brilliant particularly in the areas in which we applied our livelihood in the world of finance and corporate strategy he really sat at that intersection of strategic consulting and finance but while he was the smartest one in the room and, and who were self-confident enough to realize it, he never made a point about demonstrating that in a way that was belittling to anybody. And he was masterful at giving credit to other people in the room. Even when they didn't deserve it, Dan would give them credit. And what that did was create an environment where you as an individual wanted to succeed, not only for your own benefit, but because you didn't want to let him down. And I thought that was just an unbelievably powerful leadership um, lesson. And I tried to do it um, when I when I took the mantle and was running the investment bank and then running a the large practice in JP Morgan. I really tried to empower people and I really tried to share credit and really tried to acknowledge uh, when people, particularly those working really hard, would otherwise normally be overlooked, particularly in large uh, institutions. And I think that goes a long way. I work now in a very small, bespoke firm uh, where those skills are less relevant on a day to day basis because there aren't, you know, long-term management. Matters less, but I sit on a whole bunch of boards, and it never ceases to amaze me how effective the tool that is to be, um, you know, to sort of state your position, uh, bring a sense of humor to bear, listen carefully, and then give lots of credit to other people—not in a Pollyannish way, but in a constructive way. Um, they'll want to work harder. They'll want to succeed uh, because they won't want to let you down. And that's a that's a powerful tool, and it's one that stayed with me now for a couple of decades.
0: Yeah, I think that's where the balance of of IQ and having really good EQ actually comes to bear, right? Um, having the self awareness, okay. having the ability to really motivate, inspire people, I think can often be a you know a ten xer to the trajectory that you're on uh, after you know you have a baseline kind of level of competency in in a particular industry that you're operating in. Um, and so, I think, I think that's exactly right. Yep. And so, as a, as a final question, you know, if you had to distill the most important lessons you know, from your career and do a few observations, what would those observations be, right? Is it a, you know, a mindset you'd advocate young folks have? Uh, Is it a tactical focus you would encourage? Um, You know, if you had to give the elevator pitch, you know, what's the most critical thing you, you know, looking back would would have focused on in the early days of of your career? I think it's to, and this again sounds a little
1: Hallmark card-like, but I think it's to remain open to new ideas Uh, When I was in law school, I didn't really know what venture capitalism was, Uh, and until I really started looking around and trying to figure out what I would enjoy doing, um, it was a bit of a cipher to me, and if you had told me in law school that this would be the path I would have taken, it would have really surprised me, because I think I showed up at law school like many people do with a rather narrow definition of success because it had worked so well and got us to where we were at the time. So the, uh, the, the first bit of advice I, I always give, and I tell my kids this as well, is really be open-minded about new opportunities and ask questions. And don't be so risk-averse that you can't take uh,
0: intelligent chances to really push you out of your comfort zone a little bit. Um, I think it served me well, again, in ways that I that I didn't anticipate uh, at the time. Uh, and I encourage uh, people, particularly young people, who are really on the precipice of just starting that career climb um, to do the same thing. Well, David, all very helpful information. You know, this has been such a fun dialogue, both on, on the substantive side as, as well as personal side. So, you know, thanks again. Thanks so much for taking the time, and, and this has really been great. Well, I mean, thank you. You're very kind. This is a lot of fun. And uh, I spend, as part of my day job, I spend a lot
1: of time talking to people who are quite a bit younger than I am. So I, uh, I enjoy it and I look forward to the opportunities to do it wherever I can.